but it synthesized so many things, including, and you under, you will understand this, and you've talked about this with me here. Um, my mom, certainly with you, as much or more than anyone, was very inclusive of all of my friends. Always made my, I think a lot of people experienced my mom, maybe not as a second mom, but but is very motherly and very, very inclusive. She was an incredibly warm person. In the first segment of this episode, part two of Losing Your Parents, Joshua and I talk about the memories that loss brings up and how those memories stay with you. The relationship doesn't end just because they've died. That's a cultural myth. It continues and changes and the focus becomes how you hold those memories and how they affect you going forward. And in the second half of this episode, Joshua shares the thinking behind his desire to build his mother's coffin. And we talk about our shared experience of that night, why it matters, and what it meant. This is Locks in the Bagel with co-hosts Kenny Benjamin and Joshua Beckett. But I can, if I think about it outside of myself, I can imagine from the pain she grew up with and from the way she holds things and Mm -hmm. sees them, I can imagine that choice. But on a kind of cultural level, right, as a parent, on a personal level, it's hard to imagine. Like I don't, I don't think I could make that choice. Well, I, you know, I couldn't make that choice. But I, I'm, just, I'm thoughtful about, about my own experiences with, of my mother. This thing that you're talking about. What practices demonstrate were demonstrated to me that my mother loved me? I mean, my mother told me she loved me all the time. She told me she loved me all the time. She hugged and kissed me all the time. There was never, any, you know, she literally said, "I'll, I'd swim through blood for you." I mean, there's like nothing. Huh. You know, and Wait, then, she, she and, said she would swim through blood for you. Is that yeah. like a thing in your family? Like a ritual? Yeah. There were big blood, swimming. blood yeah. swimming. Yeah, but but I'll give you, and I I don't I don't say this to to make you feel bad. Obviously, about your experience with your mother. Oh, please um, go ahead. Say say it to make me feel bad. <laughs> no, no, I would never do that. Uh, my mother, I mean, until really until the day she died, but certainly until very late in her life. I don't know if you remember this. My mother and I experienced when I was nine years old a very horrific event. We were held, we were held at gunpoint. We were bound, and my mother was raped, and I witnessed that. Right. Never talked about it. Mm-hmm. Never talked about it. When she was eighty-eight years old, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, I said mm-hmm. to her, "We've never talked about that, and I really want you to come to therapy with me so we can talk about it. If you want to do that, then I'll do that. Of course, I'll do that." Mm-hmm. Of course, I'll talk about that. And, you know, in therapy, that was, we only went to one session, you know, and that was really kind of all we needed. And, and that was I, helpful for you. I, yes. Makes I, sense I, I, I hope it was helpful for her. But I sat and I, I shared, as you were talking about, I shared what my experience was, which is that, and I don't even think that my experience at the time, it was just sort of in reflecting on it later, but right, nobody ever checked on me after, at that, after that event. Yeah. Forget the fact that what happened to my mom, which was right awful, and the fact that I witnessed that. But right, like just stop at we were held at gunpoint and bound. I was nine. Yeah. I no, know. Nobody said to me after that. No adult in my life said, "How are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. Are you are you okay?" So I was sharing that with my mom, and you know, she just said, "I'm so sorry." And I was, right. and here's something that was fascinating. She said yeah. to me, I was, my marriage was falling apart and I was more 
focused on that than I was what happened to me or what happened to us. Yeah. I mean, that again, everything exists in a context and a right. context of time so, as well. The point being, the point being at 87 or 88 years old, my mother was yeah. still practicing those things that showed me that she cared and that she loved me. Right. She would willing to do that for you, even though she had never done it for and herself. Was, yeah. And she was willing to just listen. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That does make me feel horrible, but not in a bad way. Because I loved your mother too. I mean, your mother was like a second mother to me. And by the way, that was a cause of problems with my own mother. Your mother caused a lot of problems for me with my mother because mm -hmm. of the way I talked about your mother when we were kids. Mm -hmm. Because my mother couldn't ex I Ju my friend our friend Julie's mother too, Suzanne her her and Gogi, those those two names brought up hives from my mother because I would talk about those women and how supportive they were of me. And, and we're talking about when we were teenagers and how much, you know, I enjoyed talking to them. And my mother always took that as an attack. And by the way, I didn't use it then in that way as an attack. I was simply relating how lovely it was to have these other people in my life. You know, I think you and I both have an addition idea of people than a subtraction idea, like meaning that in the more people that love you in your life, the more people you can bring into your life that feel love and are able to make you feel good or safe or whatever you want to feel, that's a positive for a ch for my child. Like I don't feel jealous of any relationship my daughter has with people that make her feel safe and loved and cared for. That doesn't take away from my relationship with her. That's different. My mother, again, for mm -hmm. all the reasons of her own childhood and her own horrific experience, could never, and even into her 70s and the last time I talked to her, she couldn't get past that idea that other people mattered to me. She always took that meaning that if other people mattered to me, she didn't. That's the way she heard it. And I never said it that way. I never meant it that way. I never said it that way. But, you know, my mother hated, God, this was <laughs> the last story I'm going to tell about this is at my graduation from graduate school. And this is when I was, what, 42 my graduation from graduate school, which was a huge thing for me. You remember, I mean, I mean, you remember that it was a huge thing for me because I had never graduated from college. I didn't do undergraduate. I did it 10 different places. I, I remember, I, I remember you wrote to me and said, this is a huge yeah. thing for me and it would mean a lot to me. I'd like you to go. And then I, yeah, didn't go. I don't remember that. And now I'm going to feel sad for that too. But, and I appreciate that. But again, this was sort of the time just before our rapprochement. Um, just before we said, oh, mm. Caron, as you said last week, <laughs> just before some French phrase, some dude uses a French phrase and changes the whole dynamic of the podcast. But anyway, this was a huge deal for me. Not only was I getting my first degree, but I had experienced a program that was challenging to me in ways I'd never anticipated that I never would have been able to finish when I was younger. I wrote a you know 125 page thesis that I never thought I could do. I did a lot of things. I mean, it shifted a lot for me in terms of my own sense of identity, graduate school in my early 40s, by the way. And I was also planning, I planned the graduation party. I planned the whole graduation weekend for our, my graduating class. And we, on the Friday night before the ceremony, which was on Saturday or Sunday, but we did this thing in front of the old, this is in Pasadena at the school called Pacific Oaks. And they had this beautiful old craftsman building. And we did this outdoor ceremony under this stunning tree. And we all invited two people to it. And, and I was the MC, and, and we, we set up this idea where we, had, we would talk about two people in each of our lives that helped us get to this point. 
I invited my parents who came and I invited uh, a very old friend, a friend of mine named Catherine, who I was business partners with at the time. And who was my closest friend at the time. We spent a lot of time together. And she was this kind of magical, mystical, ethereal woman who just it was full of wisdom way beyond her years and just very supportive of me. We spent three years together during graduate school. While I was going to graduate school, we had this literacy business that we worked at every afternoon together. So we spent every day together basically for three years. Got very close and just a beautiful person. And then I also had my clinic supervisor, David Marston, who taught me about narrative therapy, this especially this unique therapy that we do, you and I both practice. And so I wanted to highlight those two particular people in my life. And I thought, that was beautiful. Like I was very excited. So when I spoke, I spoke about how much David had influenced my this whole process I'd been through to become a therapist and how how amazing he was and how much I learned from him and how Catherine was sort of the rock, the anchor of my support during this time. It was very specific to that time. And so, you know, I did that speech. We did that. The whole thing went beautifully and everyone loved the event I put on. And it was, you know, I was feeling just so full of joy and, and accomplishment in a way that I hadn't really felt before, you know, specifically, especially in this area. And then the next day, the graduation happened. And then after the, mm-hmm. the Pasadena Civic Auditorium, which is a huge place, like 3,000 people, right? And I was one of four featured speakers at the graduation. Again, feeling very much a sense of pride in what I had accomplished in ways, again, I had never done before. It was a huge deal for me that weekend. And my parents were there. My daughter was there. It was a big deal. You, you obviously chose not to come, which hurt me. To this day, still feels like my heart was cut out and eaten by lions. But all right, I digress. But um but so then after the graduation, we walked across the street to this outdoor mall. There was a wine bar literally right across the street from the Pasadena Civic. We we're going to have like a little celebration, just my family and friends. And so we went over there. And just as we were going, my mother, my mother comes to me and says, Bernie and I, her husband, Bernie and I aren't going to go. And I'm like, oh, you're not feeling what she says? Yeah, whatever. So it turns out my mother was hurt by the fact that I had mentioned these, used these two other people the night before. That's why she couldn't go. She was so overwhelmed by the pain of other people being meaningful to me and her not being, I guess. Did you mention your father in this speech? Did you say my father no, of helped course not. get here? I was talking specifically about the, we each had two people. Right. So, so how does she have somehow out of that, that she pulled? That's my mother. I mean, that was her, yeah, again, okay. that was her experience. And again, if, if I was my mother's therapist, there's a clear line from my mother's childhood to these experiences. I can see them. It's, it's, and it's painful and it's very mm. sad. That's why I don't blame my mother. I just feel sad. That's just what it is. I feel sad for her because of her experience and the way she's been molding them. Well, I would also, well, I would also, I would also say this: it's not her fault. Yeah, it's her, but it is her responsibility. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, as a parent, I mean, the story of your mother going to therapy in her eighties to talk about one of the most painful, if not the most painful, experience she ever had in her life that she'd never talked about. But because you wanted to, and it was important to you, because you also had the experience, uh, an experience of it. I mean, that's powerful. And and the opposite of that, I would argue, in some ways, is that experience I had with my mother over and over and over again, culminating in the most meaningful weekend of my life, you know, apart from my daughter being born, the most meaningful weekend of my life in terms of accomplishment and my sense of identity, and her just making it about, you know, her not capable of not making it about her own feelings of hurt at that she wasn't highlighted as the person the most meaningful to me. And so, yeah. And then there was another incident that weekend also that my mother similar, but it's no point beating a dead horse. But, um, but anyway, so that, so that's my, that's my experience of losing my parents. So I've, so I've shared two, so I've shared two really kind of profound stories about my mother. Let me share one other story about my mother, which also feeds into my mother always being Go. my mother. 
I was doing a play off off Broadway, and we all went out to the Carnegie Deli after nice. the show. Well, she she so this is actually okay. So here you go. This this is two story. This this covers two things in one. So she flew out to mm-hmm. New York because there's she would never not right. show up to something. Of course, doing. uh, you know, I mean, this this she went back when I was on television weekly. She came, of course, came to every record, every taping that we did, no matter how many takes we did, laughed just as hard or harder at the same joke. <laughs> I do recall that, again. by the way. <laughs> okay. Went to the Carnegie Deli. Me, the cast, the crew, every, it was like 15 people there. It was a small production. And we went out for like coffee and, and dessert. I order. Were you there, by the way? I don't, know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's one of those things where I have a memory of it, but I'm not sure it's a story memory or an actual memory. I order apple pie mm-hmm. a la mode. Okay. And I mean, everybody's ordering, and the waitress comes to me. I order apple pie a la mode. And my mother, not quietly, by the way, and in, fr- and in front of everyone, says he likes that warm, not too warm, <laughs> with the ice cream on the side. <laughs> Love that. And I look at her and you're like, you, are you fucking kidding me? You're killing me. See, really? Did you just say that in front of this entire table? Um, You know, that's so funny that you asked me if I was there because I'm still not sure if I was there, but I remember this happening. So I'm not sure I remember it happening because I was there or I remember it happening because I've been told about it. I don't, I honestly don't know. This is like the experience I have of my childhood, by the way, there, there were super eight films of when I was, you know, one to five and I don't know if I if I had a childhood that exists outside the Super 8 films of my childhood. Right. Although you could argue, as annoying as that was, that still is a reflection of me being the most important person in my yes. mother's life and the kinds of the kind of attention that she paid to the yeah. things that were important. The, to it me. is. I mean, this is a cliche. You know? It is little the little things that matter. It's paying attention to the other it's paying attention yeah. to the things that make a difference and taking little actions on a regular basis they're much i would argue little actions on a regular basis for me and again i don't want to speak for all of humanity but little actions on a regular basis are so much more meaningful than birthday presents or hanukkah presents and again this is also part of my sad fucked up childhood yeah. because because I don't, yeah. I've never really appreciated birthdays and holidays in those ways because they always felt to me like a bullshit expression of meaning. Like, let me know I care about you on this one day that society tells you to, but the rest of the time you can judge me and act like I don't matter. So I've always struggled with that. It's part of my struggle. But it makes sense, right? Because of my experience. It, it, it makes complete sense because of your yeah. experience. All right. So now it's time for the four questions. Do you have your two questions or did you forget to do that? I, I wouldn't. Uh, I, no, no, I wouldn't say I forgot to do it. I was thinking about it. OK, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. OK, yeah. are you ready? I know okay, what you're going to say. Go ahead. No, you don't. Yeah. You're going you you to gonna say. hold it up for a dramatic shot and then you're going to say, I forgot to do it. Go on. No, that is not what yeah, I was going to say. what you might say. Yes. I yes. totally okay, would fair that, enough. But, the, but now, no, I thought I had the question and I thought, this, now this is classic and this is just, this is simply a reflection of middle age. My not having, to, to paraphrase my father, my not having this question should not be construed as anything yeah. but middle uh-huh. age. I had the question and I did not write it down and I thought like, ooh, that's and a good question. And then you forgot it. And it t- and, and it ties and then I forgot. Yeah, and you know what? And you know what? And my experience this week was of the four questions. Wait, 
And you know what else? I had another question in the middle of this podcast, yeah. and I thought, ooh, I got a different question, and that's a good question, and I've forgotten that one as well. Two days ago, I said to myself aloud, Kenny, and I, as I will often speak to myself that way, because that's my name. Yeah, you should call you should call or text yeah, Joshua. I said I should I should text Joshua to remind him. And then I thought, no, he, I don't want him to think I don't trust him. And I appreciate that. And, and yet, I, and I no, not and yet, because what I'm saying no, yes, is like I would have because I because I had it. No, I yes, know and, and yet, because I had it and I forgot. What you what you should have texted yeah. me was write it down. Yeah, I should just out That's of what blue you text text. Here's yeah. the thing from Yes, but I would have known, but I would have known what I would have known yeah. what you meant. That's what you should have texted me. It was write it down, not don't forget yeah. to do it. I didn't forget to do it. I didn't write it down. Can you just so say I'm sorry? I'm so okay. sorry. So here's the first question for you. And I want you to keep it short. Can you do that? Yeah. Two sentences. What was the worst date you ever went on and why? Why was it bad? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of worst dates? Well, I know what time. <laughs> I know the one you're thinking of. I don't know. So you're thinking of the Nazi. You keep asking me questions that you already, you want a particular. Here's answer. another thing I learned on from television, who was basically my parent as a child. I learned this from watching many, many legal shows, LA Law amongst them. Never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Um, well, after my after my years of law school and sitting as, as a federal judge on the bench, I can tell you that it's actually completely helpful. Okay, so just tell a brief story of your worst date. I ended up at her house for dinner, and we were talking about something about like identity or I don't know what it was. Or and she comes out from left field with, "Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about." Oh, I should say. So this one was mm -hmm. German. It's always a bad sign for a nice Jewish boy. Always a bad sign. Unfair. That. It's completely unfair, but it's also true. It's completely unfair. I I was not paying any attention right. to that. I Correct. Didn't prejudge mm -hmm. her in any way. And I think it's important to say that this story is not reflective of Indeed, all Germans. the German people are a lovely people. And Berlin apparently is one of the so, great cities uh, in the world. Go on. So, yeah, I don't know. At some point she said, Yes, I am. So she started to get very emotional. She said, I'm so tired of being called a Nazi. And I'm working on a book with a friend that we're going to show that the Holocaust didn't happen. <laughs> I, <laughs> Every Jewish boy is the name of like, a date. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, you're right. You, you, people shouldn't be calling you yeah. a Nazi. Why, Why would people, people think that? You Nazi? Why would people think that? And this feels, um, by the way, let me interrupt you. This feels very analogous to being at the Charlottesville March. And at the moment, everyone starts saying Jews will not replace us. Your first thought is, eh, maybe these aren't my people. Go on. These aren't my people. Well, yes. And yeah. Well, and I think I should say, I really do think that you, I don't think anybody should call anybody except Nazis right. I Nazis. Get I really don't think that. I really, really don't think anybody I'm guilty should of doing that. Nazis. And I agree I with that it. I think, it, I think it minimizes uh, who actual Nazis were and uh, the memory of the people that they murdered. So in that moment, the dilemma, I, what was the Sex dilemma I faced? or going or listening to this crap, yes. leaving. Well, yeah, yeah. right. We well, all remember you in your 20s, yeah, do, yeah, do the right thing and yeah. leave or stay. And have sex. And, and have yeah, sex. You were really growing right. emotionally in those years. Well, wait, what, but what did I do? It's your story. You tell the people. I'm not telling your story. I left. No, I know I you left. bastard. You did good for you. Mazel tov. A blessing on your head. Everything. That was like one time. I could count on one maimed yeah. time. One maimed. One maimed time. 
I could count on one maimed hand yeah. the number and of let times. Me ask, let me I, ask I you the, the, the important thing. given given that dilemma. One yeah. named hand. I did the. They the study count. that at Harvard Law. That yeah. dilemma. That's called the uh, the Josh dilemma. They study that sex or Nazis. It's a very difficult choice for many people. Yeah. Um, and yeah. let me ask you the most important question, yeah. though. When you got home, was yeah. was there a party that thought, "Damn, I shouldn't have left." Yes, I think there was. Joshua has just made an online donation to the Simon Wiesenthal Center as we were speaking. <laughs> so don't be alarmed. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this question. Second question. If you could do anything else other than what you're doing now and something you've never done before, what would that thing be? What career would you like to have? I might be a furniture maker. I, lo- I do love making furniture. Yeah, I might do that. Um, okay. Yeah, there was a time when I thought being a rabbi would be kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> but the t- learning that's, Hebrew. That's, is, we're going to talk about that in the, in the next in another podcast because we're going to talk about Jewish. What does that mean? But anyway, that's a different podcast. But today, I'm going to answer the two questions I gave you since you failed in your responsibility as a co-host. Yeah. Come up Good. with your own questions. What, what were the questions? <laughs> What's the worst date you've ever had? Uh, you know that's a hard one for me. No, I don't have I don't have a date like that date that comes to mind. Um, I think I'm going to give you a weird answer. To this I it's not it's a kind of a date, but when online dating was first starting in in earnest, I I wasn't part of it. But a couple years after that, I started to do the online dating thing. And here's the thing I learned about online dating in that era. And what it was, there wasn't like video messaging. It was just texting back and forth, messaging that way. It's like text now. You can't communicate two things in a text. One, 40 years of lived experience. You can't get that from a text. And two, tone and nuance. So I was having this like hour and a half texting session with this woman. It was really fun. It was going great. We were having this really deep conversation. We talked about deep stuff too, like childhood stuff and, you know, deep questions. It was really beautiful. And then it was getting to, it was about midnight. And I said, We'd been on we had been online for about two hours at this point, having this really great conversation. And I said, God, I'm feeling a little loopy. I think I need to go to bed. Now, for me, the word loopy meant tired. Uh, the response I got when I was <laughs> this again, the context of this was this is a woman I had just met online. We had a two-hour, really wonderful texting session that seemed we were really connecting, we really had a lot in common, we were really listening to each other. It, it was like beautiful. And the response I got from, wow, it's getting late, I'm getting a little loopy, was, (laughs) I just remember this so vividly, she texted back, well, I guess you're not the person I thought you were. And she hung up, basically. (laughs) What? Exactly. That's what my my reaction was. What the fuck are you talking about? We just had this really deep, meaningful conversation. And I, I, I said, I'm feeling a little loopy. And she's like, you're not the person I thought you were. First of all, who the fuck says I'm not, you're not the person I thought you were from a conversation in text. I mean, that's like whatever. But then, okay, so then she just left. So then I went to. You're not, you're not the man I once. Like literally, it was like, what the fuck? So then I went to bed. I woke up the next morning. I couldn't get this out of my head. So I texted her back. I'm like, hey, um, I just, I'm sorry. I don't understand that response. Uh, I thought we were having this great conversation and you texted back. Did you miss on? And, and the thought I had in my head is maybe she had a different definition of the word loopy. Cause that's the only thing I said. So what she texted me back was, yeah, well, loopy to me means drunk. And I, my ex-husband was a drunk. And the minute you said you were a drunk, that was, I was done. I was like, wow. And I wrote her back this nice, this sweet note. Like, well, that's not what I meant. I'm 
by the way, I'm not a big drinker. I just loopy to me my tire and I was tired and I thought we could finish continue this conversation the next day. But like, it's so interesting, like how people have their diff- their own meaning they bring to something and without communicating the difference in meaning, right. which is almost impossible in a text relationship. Right? right. But that's what it was. It was so like jarring to me. So did she say, did you guys work it out? Was there a resolution? No. Did she say, oh my God. No, she so did. Sorry. She did say, I... I'm sorry. But at that point, like, I was like, okay, someone who reacts that quickly without asking me about that is not someone I wanted to date. So I just said, I appreciate that. And, you know, let's go our separate ways. But because, like, that's the kind of person that, that responds. So, and I get the response. It's a trigger for her based on her experience, but it's not someone I wanted to date. But yeah, that was just like, it was so jarring to me. Like, I didn't sleep that whole night. I was like, what the hell happened? So, mm. anywho, so that's the four questions. No, no, that was, that was, that was three questions. Oh. Damn what it. other career? Oh, the other career. Have? Oh, this is easy for me. I, I'd be a painter. Like no, an artist. Oh, no, never a house painter. I have no interest in houses. I would be an artist. I would be a painter and a sculptor, and I would make uh, like mixed media art. I, I like a whole idea about art. I love art. I love the idea of making art and creating art. I'm just. You can, you can yeah, not, do that. I, I don't have any natural skill at it, and I would have to go to school, which I couldn't do now. I can't afford school. Uh, but that's what I would do. I would become an artist because I love the uh, the energy and the the freedom and the aesthetic and just the whole sensibility about creating art that has impact. Right? That that Im- art to me is very impactful politically. Like we were talking about last week, everything is political. Art to me can be the a great form of expression, I and mean, it's so beautiful. Uh, anyway, that's what I would do. I'd be an artist. I don't think I've ever told anybody that before. I'm not sure. I've never told you that before. I love love that you would be an artist. Thank you for that. I appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah. So I was thinking about something the other day on a completely different topic and I turned on the TV and I realized I don't have regular TV, so I don't even know. Do you, you don't have regular TV either, do you? I do not. Who knows? Who has regular TV? It's like having a home phone. Like who the hell has a home phone? Your home, your sister is 97 years old. Of course she has a home phone. My sister does. And whenever I tell her something, she says, do you know that, uh, you know, whatever, Trump just fired his defense secretary, secretary of defense. I'm like, yeah. She goes, how do you know this? You don't even, you don't have television. Where, how do you say, how do you find this out? Right. She still thinks Walter new, Cronkite yeah, is delivering her the news. You don't have television. How do you, how do you see the news? She, yeah. she asks me this regularly. There is there is a great scene in a show that I love on Netflix called Kim's Convenience. Okay, and there's a bunch of like twenty year olds in they're in art college and they're in the store. the 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 woman whose parents own the store, Kim's Convenience, is one of the main characters. And one of her friends is saying to her, they're talking about like gen- generations and phones. And she said, "Somebody called me the other day." And then she said, and then "There's like a beat," and she says. Who does that? <laughs> I love that. Like that whole idea. You hear that all the time. People of our age and older are always saying like, well, in the old days, we used to actually use our phones for talking. You know, whatever. It's so much It's so much easier, by the way, to be um, less engaged and, and pretend like you're engaged than to actually be engaged now is, by the texting and emails and all the rest of this stuff. Right. Anyway, I digress. Um, okay, so let's go to the uh, gin and tonic segment. What we like to call gin and tonic what you might call what brings us joy, what makes us crazy. What do you have for me, Joshua? You know what brings me joy this week is... I don't. That's again why I ask. I do pottery. This week, yeah, no, but this week I uh, I fired some uh, some pots and bowls. And opening the kiln after whatever thirty six hours and not knowing what's exactly what's going to come out, what the glazes are going to look like. There are always variations. Sometimes there's disappointment. Sometimes it's just a, a great surprise. 
Anyway, that gave me tremendous joy this week. So wait, so you're saying that sense of anticipation is is exciting. It's not it's not terrifying like waiting to hear if the test came back, you know, negative or positive for cancer. That kind of anticipation. It's this joyful anticipation like, "Oh my god, it could be amazing. It could be not great, but it's still it's exciting." Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. I can see that. Although I've never I've never had a kiln. To me, I think of like when I think of a kiln, I think of a guy in the 50s trying to make a home nuclear weapon. I don't know why that was what comes yeah, to mind. Yeah, you can't make a nuclear weapon in a kiln as far as I know. Do you know that, Mr. Mr. Wizard, I, Mr. Scientist? Do you know you can't make a bomb? That joy was kind of eclipsed by Joe Biden's uh, <laughs> uh, election, by the way. That was the big joy. I would say that was the big joy. Oh, that of the that week, was the big joy of the week for me. But that's but but up until that happened, it was taking pots out of the kiln. What kidding? What is what is giving you great joy this week? Well, you know, it's it's a I would say it's like a subheading within the broader heading of the Joe Biden thing. The I thought that the the Kamala Harris speech that she gave, where she talked about where she gave that 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 idea that young girls now can look up and think like this is possible. Mm-hmm. Young girls, young girls of color. I just think uh, like everybody deserves that. You know, we've always had that. We're white men. We've always had that ability to look up and see ourselves everywhere and anywhere. And that assumption that we we could find any form of power we wanted and was available to us was always there since we were born. But I, I think that the the fact now that there's somebody like a Kamala Harris who can say to people, "Look, you you can do this too. Look at me," uh, is so powerful and so meaningful. That brought me a lot of joy. That's a huge deal. That's not just a thing that people can say anymore, right? Like if you, if yeah. you work hard, you can do that. Because now right. you can actually see it. But we, everybody deserves to have what you and I have always had is representation, is is seeing ourselves in it. I mean, unless you see yourself in it, how do you get there? I think that's been true in many ways. And the people who've gotten there without seeing themselves in it have worked a thousand times harder than the rest of us and, and have had to deal with a thousand times more crap than the rest of us. You know what made me crazy this week? What made you crazy? You know that guy? What's that guy in The Daily Show? Is it Jordan Klepper? Yeah, Jordan Klepper, Klepper, yeah. He goes and he interviews these people outside these Trump rallies, right? Yeah, those are, those are gr- um, really great interviews. They're great interviews. And and he's just a, he just asks questions, right? He doesn't, he, he doesn't try and get you. He doesn't try and attack anybody. He just asks honest questions about people's experience and their beliefs. And they say some of the most insane things you've ever heard. And the one thing I heard today... That just it just drives me nuts because again, whatever your political beliefs, I I would like to believe that we all share a love of truth. And truth is relative in some ways, but some things simply are just factual. Some things are not. And then there's issues of truth around those things. But some things are just truthful, like China did not send millions of illegal ballots to change our election. There is not one shred, shred iota of evidence to that. Not one. Not one actual uh, court case, by the way, in court of all these cases they're bringing to court, has shown any evidence of such a thing. Not even one, not even a shred of it. But but many, many people outside these rallies today, outside, not the rallies, outside the uh, election offices today, were saying how, you know, one of the problems with this election is that all these Chinese, the Chinese sent all these millions of ballots to, to cheat. Mm-hmm. It's like they just heard it on the Internet somewhere. Somebody said it in some blog in some corner of the dark web. And then all of a sudden a video goes around and, and now literally millions of people believe the Chinese have sent illegal ballots, which, by the way, is almost impossible. But, and yet 
forget the impossibility of it. There's just no evidence. No evidence. Listen, I ordered my wife a dress from China. It took literally, it took little, <laughs> no, literally, <laughs> it took yes. literally. How the hell are they going to get millions of ballots here when they can't get one weeks. dress? I'm not kidding. 16 yeah. weeks for that thing to There's show something up. Wrong By with the way, ter- terrible dress. The, yeah, why would you order your wife a dress from I didn't know China, by the from, way? Because I didn't know it was coming from China. Do the research, man. I didn't know it was Do coming from China. It was a, I took a flyer, and it was a bad idea. Mm. So I can tell you positively, there is no way they could coordinate millions of votes. They can't get one dress here. Yeah, I hear you. You cannot have a conversation with people who believe these things. I and know. part of the reason you cannot do it is because, and this, so this goes back to something I want to touch on something you said. Okay. Most people think of themselves as, uh, what did you say? Like truth loving or, or, or they, they mm. believe in truth or they want truth. Valuing They truth. value truth. I think most, I think most people also think of themselves as good people. Yes. Okay? I would say that would, that would definitely be true if you polled people. Most, yeah, people. most people would say they're good people. Yeah, most people. I, and, and they might say, yeah, most of the time I am, I have my flaws, but most people, I think, right. I totally like agree. or want to think of themselves as good people. Yes. To get them to come around to the point of view that you and I share about Donald Trump would be to ask them to understand that they are not who they thought they are. It yes. would be an identity. It would be a crisis of identity that would bring so yes. much shame. Crushing, crushing, yeah. eviscerating. Yes. It would be it would, that, that that's why I think you cannot talk to them. I don't think you can't talk no. to them because they're stupid. I think that there are people who are stupid. I think there are stupid Democrats too. I think they're probably a lot more stupid Republicans, but I'm <laughs> But but um, Fair but it's not because they're stupid. It's because it would create a crisis of identity yeah. that most people yeah. are just simply not willing to tolerate or to 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 go through. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's a good point. I wanted to talk about this really interesting experience that we shared that you created for us to share it with some other friends as well. This idea, and I would like to know, first of all, the, the experience was that after Joshua's mother died, he then informed us all that, I can't remember if you informed us before she died or after, but at some point you informed us that you wanted to actually build your mother's coffin. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard any, I've never heard of that. I mean, I assume it's it's been done for generations, but in our world, I'd never known anybody who did that. And so the question I have is, why did you want to do that? What did that mean to you? This is actually a good tie into a question that you asked me last week, which was, what if I could do anything else, what would I do? And, and after faltering for a moment, it dawned on me, and it was the answer that you were looking for, that I would build furniture. Yes. Uh-huh. Never ask, ask the question if you don't know the answer. Go on. So, uh, you know, I love working with my hands. I love building <laughs> things. I always have. I love working with wood. And um, I remember, I mean, it has to be now at least 20 years ago, um, I had this idea that it would be the last thing I could do to honor my mother to do something that was deeply personal for her after her death, uh, deeply personal for me, to me, for her, and something that would be enduring. Uh, I mean, obviously the wood literally won't be enduring, but you know what I mean? That, that, um, you're talking about the experience of doing it and the, mm-hmm. and did you think about the sharing of it with your friends? Was that part of that mm-hmm. at the time or that came later? Um, that actually came a little bit later. That came a little bit mm-hmm. later and I don't know when that, I don't know when that came, but it synthesized so many things, including, and you, under, you will understand this and you've talked about this with me here. Um, my mom 
certainly with you as much or more than anyone was very inclusive of all of my friends always made my, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people experienced my mom, maybe not as a second mom, but, but as very motherly and very, sure. very inclusive. She was an incredibly warm person. Always asked about my friends. My friends always asked about her. Even, you know, people who didn't even know her that well were very sort of invested in how my mom's doing. I thought as a, um, a testament to, to that inclusivity and, mm-hmm. and also as a, grieving process, a storytelling and grieving process, I would invite my friends, my close friends to join me building the casket and we could sit around, uh, stand around and and tell stories about my mom and build this casket that would be her final resting place. I just thought it would be a deeply personal uh, experience on many, many levels, which it was. Describe the experience for you afterwards. Like, what did it feel like? And when you think back on it, what what memories come to mind? We we should not have been drinking alcohol and, and working with power <laughs> tools. It was. Does, does that suggest that the measurements were off? No, you did that. No, but you want right? to know what's funny is my. So you know Andy, our friend Andy. Yeah, sure. He comes up to me. So you know after the uh, interment. There's typically there's right there's like a line of people who sort of come by the family and they they greet and embrace or whatever have a have a have a moment. Mm-hmm. Andy comes up to me. He was he was there with us when we were building the casket. And Andy is is another handy Jew, right? So I'm a very mm-hmm. handy. Jew. So I'm a very mm-hmm. handy Jew. There aren't very many of us. Andy <laughs> Andy is is one of them. Andy is the guy who I think he has a new PBS show called The Handy Jew. Well, he's the one who suggested. He's the one who suggested to me who, that I should have my own show called "If You If I Can Build It, So Can Jew," or 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 so God, horrible. So um, or, or possibly just the handy Jew. So anyway, he's the other handy mm-hmm. Jew in my circle. Okay, I think there are only t- no, no. My my mentor Larry is a, is also a handy Jew, but he was not there b- building the considerably build, older building though, different, the generation. different generation, different uh-huh. generation. Um, so anyway, he comes up to Larry is handy. He's very handy. Yeah. You know, it's funny. This is, this is the best example of don't judge a book by its cover. I've met Larry a number of times, never through you before you knew Larry. I, I was affiliated with Larry in a therapeutic sense. Not, I knew him through a group of other therapists and I met him a few times. And, and if you would ask me, tell me to describe, what do you get from that guy? Handy is not one of the things (laughs) I would have said. It's one of the things that, but it's one of the many things that we have in common, and that and that that bonded That's us awesome. quite immediately. That's amusing. So Andy comes up to me after the interment, and he goes, "I woke up this morning thinking we should we should have <laughs> we should have used the four inch screws." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, That's a classic. I can say I can see that as someone within that vibe, that would be a classic like reaction. After yeah, I thought. That's very funny. So you know, I, t- t- I mean, to answer your question, it did all. It 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 touched all of the things that that I was hoping it would touch. It made me it, it made me feel um, close to the people that I cared about and and feel mm-hmm. safe around. It helped me feel safe. The the alcohol and the power tools notwithstanding, it helped me feel pizza was good oh, too. The pizza was good but anyway. Yeah, go on. But not a safety concern. Mm, uh, you could argue that <laughs> dripping oil. If you if you drip the oil into the screw I, thingies, I, I, I don't know. I, the problem, I, don't, I don't. I don't think I could argue that actually. Right. So. Again, I'm not an expert here. You just are a not layman. a handy Jew. Uh, I am not a handy Jew. Of, I, I, you I, did a lot of watching and scrutinizing, though. I think that night. I, I, I did. I think I was supportive. I remember putting my hands on a lot of men's yeah, shoulders I think so. and rubbing I think them. So you did a, saying you're doing yeah, great work. Yeah, I think you did a lot of leaning. 
I mean, I'm not. I did yeah, a lot of leaving, yeah, a lot of leaving and, and looking. Yeah, looking. You, I would say not just looking, but viewing. I think I did a lot of viewing, yeah. which suggests angles. We have me. a we have a great photo. I wonder if we should put the photo of of all of us up on on wherever wherever it is you put photos. That photo is going up on one of our trailer videos. Oh, okay. Coming do you have that photo? I do. I have a multiple. Oh, so I okay, have okay. three different photos. Oh, okay, yeah. Do you not have those handy? I'll send them I'm to sure you. I have. Anyway. Yeah, there's some great photos of us standing around. I wish there were more. Fo- I wish we had taken video mm-hmm. of the whole thing in real time, and then we could have like sped it up, and it would have been a really interesting video. Nobody thought of that at the time. I think partly because of the alcohol, but yeah. um, that would have been that would have been a nice thing. So, so one of the things memory. it did is it, is it kept my mother's memory. It kept my mother alive. It, it, it helped to 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 help me begin to kind of. I mean, begin the grieving process. It was a great. It was a great beginning of the grieving process for me. You know what it you know what it brings up what just made me think when you were saying that is you know when when our when my father died just as an example right you feel like there he's gone and there's really there's nothing to do so you what we do as Jews I would say I don't know if this is true in all traditions but you know we sit around after a funeral we didn't have a funeral for my dad we just had a a gathering because he didn't want that so I just invited people over to the house mm-hmm. and we just sat that, sat around all day and told stories and ate food and did the things that we do to celebrate somebody's life but there's no there's no action there's something about taking action there's something active that about moving your body in some ways I think somatically that that is helpful in in that process of building the coffin that uh, that is so unique that I mean you don't can't really say that about many things but it was just unique yeah that so, experience of the doing right talk about hundred percent but I think the point that you, that you're making is 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 terrific because it is simultaneously um, uh, a, 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 an attention being paid to mm-hmm. an activity so I'm not simply paying attention to the grief itself right right? but i'm also although the grief is woven into the activity in a unique way that that feels healthy yes yeah well for me it did but but i'm I'm also but i would say i was paying attention less to the grief and i was paying more attention Mm -hmm. to to my mother's life and and not to the grief and also to the to me it seems like to the care like to the taking care of there's a there's a great taking care of peace Mm -hmm. in building her resting place yeah that again, most of us don't experience when we lose a parent. We don't have a sense of, I mean, the funeral in some ways is a taking care action, but this is so specific and so so focused in a way that's just different than anything else, I think. I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that, that that's what I mean by it, it, was, it was the last and most loving gesture I could think yeah. of to make after, you know, after she had died, because there was nothing I could do for her, but I, but I did feel like, oh, look, there's still this thing I can do for her. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's just an amazing thing, and I have to say, as someone who was was there, again, that is a that is a singular and solitary and unique memory, unlike any other experience I've ever had in my life. Mm. Uh, and for someone who I deeply cared about and who really was, you know, as as we all know, was like my second mother during my adolescence. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was. She, I mean, some ways, sadly, she was like my first mother during my adolescence mm-hmm. and that sense of being taken care of. And even though it's 35 years ago, 40 years ago now, it, it's still with me. Yeah. You know, and, and it all, right. But it also then, it also does this thing where, you know, it also, there, there's a, it's so, it's very multi-layered. There's also demythification yeah. that takes place when you're, when you're literally putting your hands on the wood that is creating the coffin, you know. Yeah, and as you, as 
as you remember, there were a lot of there's a lot of laughter, there's a lot of a lot of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, in our culture, and meaning Jewish culture, with with a few exceptions, but not many, I think it's very common for people to talk about death uh, before yeah. before it happens. Talk about my certainly my mother and I talked about the my know, father death. and I did as well often. Yeah, um, made a lot of other people uncomfortable, by the way, who were not in our faith. Yeah, right. Oh, just if I can just tell this interjected yeah. story just quickly. The the hospice uh, psychologist came to the house a couple of times, but her first visit, just like a month before my dad died, she came and she sat on the couch and my father and I were sitting there and, you know, she wanted to talk and everybody has an agenda, right? In every aspect of life, for the most part, people have agendas, mm-hmm. but this therapist comes with a certain agenda to talk about, she wants to talk about death and God and, and, you know, spirituality. And that's great. If you're not reading the room, that's great, right? My father just didn't believe in anything. He had no interest in that conversation. And so every time she started to engage in a lovely, loving, you know, engaging way, he just shut her down and she really didn't know what to do. She was just flummoxed would be the word I would use. But because we had been talking about dying in a way that was very realistic Mm -hmm. and a lot. A lot of people are not coming. This is not a comfortable conversation in our culture. We don't, as a culture, generally talk about dying, you know, in a realistic way, as if it's if it's not like the most normal action of living. Right. It's one of the things that happens to everybody, race, culture, ethnicity, finances, no matter who you are, this happens to you. And yet it's a taboo subject. I remember as a kid how uncomfortable it was that they didn't, they didn't take us to funerals when we were kids at a certain age. Like we were too young. Do you, do you have that experience? I do not that, have the opposite experience. That's funny. Cause in my family, like I, I remember my great uncle Al died and like, no, you're too young to go to that funeral. I remember being told, what was your experience? They took you when you were a kid, little kid. Yeah. I went to so many funerals. I, I only missed one and that was my mom's dad. And later on my mom said, I, I she regretted not taking me. I guess that's unique to each family then. But I think, I think, I think that that's that more the, common, though. I think your experience is more common. Yeah. I, I have, yeah your family may have had some kind of weird death wish that we can't talk about. But <laughs> I have met so many people who, who have maybe been to one or two funerals. Yeah. Before. Yeah. And, and because of yeah. that, right, we're so uncomfortable. It's so unknown and tabooy and scary because we all have a we don't, nobody knows what death is like. And, and most of us thus are taught to fear it. And because we don't talk about it, we fear it more, right? Because it's not something we, we can joke about, we can be casual about, we can, you know, as again, because it's the natural, it happens to everybody. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, but, it was, uh, so, it was I, so, so great to have you and, and, and everyone else there that night. It was, it was, it yeah. was, it was unforgettable. I don't think it's, I also don't think it's, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think it's very common. No yeah. I mean, not in, in the kind of world we live in. Perhaps in 19th century Russia, many <laughs> yeah. Jews built their own coffin. Probably all I, of them. I probably, I would, yeah. probably many of them, yeah. But again, I'm taking my cues from a, a film uh, of Fiddler on the Roof. So who knows what, what is real and what's not. Topol? Are you, is Topol still alive? I think he's dead. Anyway. Topol? What can you do? I think he is, Topol? No, I think he is alive. No. Topol? Yeah. No. I just want to say it one more time. No. There's no way he could be. He'd be like 140, wouldn't he? I don't know. He'd be like Michael Caine. I, I saw, I saw a really interesting, uh, really interesting, but I saw a pretty interesting documentary on, on Fiddler on the Roof. Michael Caine. No, on Fiddler on oh, the on Roof. Oh, on Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, um, 
What were the highlights? Well, quickly? well, just the, you know who was who they interviewed briefly, or maybe for a long time, and only pulled out of something small. But Paul Michael Glazer, who was in Fiddler on the Roof, the uh-huh. movie. That's right. And, and he said something really interesting. He said on Broadway, Zara Mostel brought brought a very Eastern European uh, tevia to the role, and when Topol did it, because he was Israeli, he brought oh. a very yeah he brought a very Israeli tevia to the role and. What was the difference? Well, because the Israeli tope, the Israeli Atevia was just a lot more sort of defiant and gutsy, and uh, yeah. you know, and and the the Eastern European Tevia, you know, was a little more sort of shruggy, and you know, that's a that's a very uh, difficult distinction i would argue shruggy i'm not sure how he parsed that out exactly shruggy. i wish i could remember huh. paul michael glazer's exact words because i think he kind of because i think he kind of nailed it but i think yeah. i right. I, th- well, was, I think his point was that like t- t- that, that zero mustel was more like you know why and you know and and te- and, and topo was more why you know it was more of a wow that's a that's a huge difference i am um, i feel that in my bones that difference yeah. <laughs> Shruggy. I'm going to write that down. I want to use that and have nobody understand what I mean. And but well, you, exactly. if you really want to have no one understand what you mean, use the word cod swallop. Yeah, that's good. Sort of au courant. I think cod swallop is a word we should bring back. It feels like a word from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Wasn't that the candy that he was? It does to sound like that, swallop. doesn't it? A cod swallop. Cod swallop. Don't eat the cod swallop, Charlie. Anyway. But I digress. So that's interesting. That whole uh, that whole Tevya thing. Such a you know, it's funny. There's there's kind of Tevya's like a singular character in the history of of Jew, Jewish boys theater minds. There's like who else is but Tevya? Although you know, I never wanted to play Tevya. That role felt like way too big for me. Did you want Tevya? That, I don't remember. Well, did you? I, I did, and thank goodness I didn't get it. Um, that role is <laughs> really is too big for most people. <laughs> <laughs> Adults, yeah. especially for seventeen-year-olds. I mean, that's a challenging role for any seventeen-year-old. Too big. I have or even funnier. Did you ever watch the Gilmore Girls? You probably didn't no. watch the Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls. There's a bit where where two of the main characters are doing some scene, uh, doing some like building sets for like a, a fifth grade production of Fiddler on the Roof, and they have to bring in this character named Kurt, who's like a 25 year old man to play Tevya with with the 10 year olds, because nobody can do Tevya when you're 10. Yeah, it's, it's very yeah. funny. Like that's a tough role. I, I, I have to say, props to the guy who did it in our high school production. Yeah, it, he it, was pretty good. I, 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 would, I would. My memory is anyway that he was beyond pretty good. That he there there yeah. was nobody who could have done it the way he did it i think he, he yes. was quite remarkable for a kid who was 17 right. i think that's true i think that's true there's a great story about him from a couple years later in your life that we won't tell now because it means nothing now but it just makes me laugh every time i hear it <laughs> great story but then you know what i'm talking about I right do. yeah that's a funny story but anyway all right let's move on from that um so this is an interesting question I had about grief and about like carrying on memory, about memory and grief. So you have a, a seven-year-old now, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think about telling the story of your mother to your daughter as she ages so she knows about her? And if you do think about it as, a, as something you want to carry on, what do you want your daughter to know? And in, how, do, how is that meaningful? Or is that meaningful? No. Well, sure. If I'm understanding your question, of course it's meaningful. You know, um, Lorraine Hedke talks about the, this idea of remembering, right? Sort mm-hmm. of like remembering, um, making someone who has died 
uh, a member of your family or a member of the community again in a new way. Mm-hmm. But she she talks about how you know the medical model in in the West of you know and that there's some prescribed way of grieving and it's just, it's it's just ridiculous if you if you're if you haven't grieved long enough something's wrong if you're still grieving after a certain point something's wrong there are certain ways to grieve you know the whole the the whole um, the stages of death you know which has become so um, codified in our society um, anger depression bargaining general acceptance is that line from Bob Fosse's movie the uh, all that jazz yeah about the law firm and anyway it's a great line go on so you know um, but she has this and she did not uh, I don't think she coined the phrase but she, she certainly talks a lot about it uh, she talks a lot about this idea of remembering uh, someone. And, um, and I, I think that's what that would be with my daughters is remembering and, and continuing to make my mom a member of the family. Right. So that's kind of a legacy that this is what runs through our family. This is what we have always valued. And, and I got it from my mother and you now get it from me. But, but that is a, is a through line, a continuity line of our family. Yeah, that's beautiful. I don't have that. I don't have any of that in any way in my family, sadly. But I love that idea. I want to be a part of a family that has that idea. How do you how do you get into a family in your 50s that has that idea? <laughs> Very challenging. I want to be adopted, is what I'm basically what I'm saying. How do you get adopted as a 55-year-old? Do you remember though when my mom was dying and was and we were trying to explain it to Dahlia and mm-hmm. Dahlia was only what two? Something mm-hmm. like that. And we were, she was sitting in the bathtub and I was sitting on the edge of the tub and I had a really long talk with her and was saying, you know, this is what's going to happen and, and Bobby's going to become part of everything, which by the way, she still says, so, so something got through, but you know, she's going to be part of everything. And, and I don't know, I, I spoke for like two minutes as eloquently or, and simply as I thought I was, I could, or was able to. I thought it was we were really connecting and she we were our eyes were locked. Yeah. She never took her eyes from me. And there's this pause after I finished and she said, I touched my butt. <laughs> uh-huh. So she really got it. She really connected. So, yeah, right, exactly. So I was like, okay, good time. That's powerful. <laughs> you know, that's very powerful. That's so funny. That's so classic. That's a great line. I touched my butt. That's nice. Yeah. Beautiful. You really, I think that that speaks to how your ability to communicate in a meaningful way. Yeah. Like she really took. Well, that okay, but here's okay, but here's the yeah. thing, right? What's the thing? Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Dahlia still says, "I touch my butt." Well, I think she she does still. Oh, say you that, were going in different also, direction. I'm sorry. I was. She also says, "Boobie's part of everything." Yeah, that's nice. So, that so she did remember something. Yeah, I love that. Right? It's actually and, a beautiful and, idea. Yeah. Boobie's part of everything. Exactly. That's a beautiful line. Well, some things, some things stick. That's beautiful. I feel good about it. Do you feel good about it? I feel good about it. Okay. All right. Let's end there. All right. Mazel tov. Until next time. A blessing on your head, Tevya. It's a box in the bagel. Thanks for listening. Box in the bagel. Um, You know what I wanted to do? Let's just sing a little small chorus of Do You Love Me. No. No. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com.